Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So, the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard. And it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. Since when has Enya had the power to make me weep? <laughs> I think that happened with your Lord of the Rings conversion of maybe a few, so. maybe a month back. Yeah. That's Elsie Fisher as Kayla, the teen protagonist of Bo Burnham's funny, moving, and occasionally brutal coming-of-age film, Eighth Grade. The 27-year-old Burnham is a successful stand-up comic and former YouTube star. Eighth Grade is his debut film. This week on the show, my conversation with Burnham, plus the film-spotting top five, Struggling Adolescence. That and more. In movies. Struggling adolescence in movies. My kids wanted me to be sure to clarify that. <laughs> I may have some room still at number five. That's all ahead on Film Spotting. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting, and welcome back to you, Josh. Welcome back to us. I could be wrong here, but I think in the six and a half years, I think it's six and a half years that we have known each other, that we've been doing this show together, it's been exactly one month since we've seen each other. I think that's the longest we've ever gone. How you have sure? you been holding up? You sure there hasn't? Well, I've been doing fine. I don't know. <laughs> that's, I, mean, I don't know that's what that's the right answer. I feel like we've had breaks around the know, holidays a, a little month? bit longer. I don't know. Time is a slippery thing for me right now. I'm still getting used to this time zone that we're in Mm -hmm. and adjusting. That's because you just got back from overseas. I did. Yes. A wonderful family heritage trip. Basically, I was just trying to stay ahead of Trump. I just want to get out of the country away from him. Okay. I, I go to Scandinavia. Yep. Look what happens. He follows me there. So I had to head back home. Fair enough. It we was, will hear a little bit more about yeah, that trip. We we managed to squeeze in a meetup, which 
I will share some details about Fantastic. later in the show. Yeah, with July 4th, that affected things. And I was in San Francisco for a little bit where I had a chance to meet up with some film spotting listeners. So we have been busy. We are happy to be back. And you are fresh from a screening. Well, maybe not fresh, still a little jet lag, but you just came from Bo Burnham's eighth grade Hit us. Stayed awake. Okay, so, that's good. So there's that's that good. for it. But I mean, hit us with it. Come on. You've got that patented Josh Larson pithy one sentence take. What is it? What, what are you talking about? Tease us. Are you referring to my thoughtful like yeah. 800 to 1,000 word reviews no. that I put in my... Okay. No, I'm You're thinking talking of about the Twitter first stuff, impression. Twitter stuff. All I've got for you right now is, and I think I am 20 minutes out of the screening, harrowing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I, and that's from the perspective of someone who is in the middle of middle school as a parent. Okay. So good film, very harrowing. Yeah. We'll see if we can get a little bit more out of you in just a bit. This week on the show, my conversation with the director of eighth grade, Bo Burnham, plus the film spotting top five is tying in with eighth grade struggling adolescence. And we will have Massacre Theater where we act out a scene for your entertainment and amusement and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. But we do begin with Bo Burnham. If you're out of touch, maybe raising a few adolescents like me, you may have not been aware of the name Bo Burnham until this year's Sundance Film Festival when you started hearing comments about this 27-year-old comic who'd made a great coming-of-age movie about an 8th grade girl. Turns out, I had actually seen Burnham before in a supporting role in last year's The Big Sick. He plays one of Kumail Nanjiani's stand-up buddies. Turns out Burnham is a successful stand-up comic with a couple of really good comedy specials under his belt. He's also a former YouTube star, and he wrote and starred in the cult hit MTV series Zack Stone is Gonna Be Famous. As I mentioned at the top of the show, 8th Grade is Burnham's feature writing-directing debut. It tells the story of 8th grader Kayla, a shy, awkward kid desperate for connection as she navigates the final week of middle school. Kayla's played by newcomer Elsie Fisher, who is remarkable in the part. Adam, you spoke with Burnham back in June. Eighth grade played at that time to a sold-out house at Chicago's Music Box Theater. It was part of the Chicago Film Critics Film Festival. In that conversation, which I still have to listen to, Adam, you know I like to see the movie first. I'll allow it. I understand Burnham talks about Fisher and what makes her such a gifted talent. Yeah, really nice comments about her and about what makes a great film performance. We also get around to the obvious question, why a 20-something dude was drawn to telling this specific story. But we're going to start with a clip from Burnham's 2016 stand-up special, which I love and I believe is still available on Netflix. Make happy. Anyone watch us celebrity lip-syncing on The Tonight Show? You know, It's the end of culture. Culture's over, everybody. We lost. This is entertainment. How is this entertainment? People we've seen too much of, mouthing along to songs we've heard too much of. And this is the bread and butter of American television. And it's always one of two things on celebrity lip syncing. It's either a male celebrity lip syncing to a woman's song, <laughs> but he's not. Or it's a rich, young, white actress, ironically lip syncing to a hip hop song. <laughs> oh, the police coming straight from the underground. Can you believe this song was once an honest articulation of class struggle? <laughs> These people. I wanted to start by saying I really admire your work, even Appreciate though it. after watching Make Happy on Netflix, I feel really guilty every time I watch Emma Stone lip sync to All I Do Is Win. <laughs> you ruined that for me? Yeah, well, I'm glad. <laughs> 88 million views on yeah. YouTube. I was like 172 of them. <laughs> right. No more. It's, it's not gone. too bad. No. no, it's okay. You know, lip syncing is fun, but it has its limits. 
<laughs> it does indeed. But having watched Make Happy and your other special What uh, and seeing the productions they are in terms of the lighting and the music and uh, occasionally a visual joke that's just for the audience watching at home, yeah. I, I'm not surprised at all that you would write and direct a movie, but was that always a goal from the time you started posting videos on your own YouTube channel or did it just evolve? No, not really. I mean, it wasn't a goal from the beginning. It was sort of something I discovered over the course of, of doing this other thing of stand-up. Of, uh, you know, I had done theater a lot of my life and, and then started doing stand-up comedy and was trying to sort of wrestle all of the things from theater that I loved into stand-up. Um, but at a certain point, I was sort of going, you know, I'm not in love with the performing, but I am in love with writing the shows, staging the shows, shooting the shows, lighting the shows. Um, and I slowly realized, like, oh, I think directing and writing a movie would sort of wrangle all the things that I actually love about this mm -hmm. into it without bringing all the anxiety of my face being the thing that delivers it, which is not <laughs> my favorite part of it. So with that said, do you anticipate at any point writing and directing a movie that you star in? I don't really, no. Okay. I mean, that's not my... Maybe. I mean, I, I, I just... I didn't write a part for myself, so... Um, and, I, and, I, and I wouldn't have casted myself in any role in this movie. So that's why it didn't happen. Um, if something comes along that I'm right for, maybe, but my, my impulse is definitely not to sit down to write myself something mm -hmm. to be in. Yeah. I've been late to the Bo Burnham phenomenon. <laughs> I, I just discovered you actually watching The Big Sick. Yeah. That, that, was, that was, was very it. funny. That oh, was my awesome. entree. Which, if I'm remembering that movie correctly, and I was quite fond of that movie, that's that's not really you. I mean, that I, seems like a, a version of you. You're yeah. playing a character that isn't really the character I'm used to seeing now in your specials. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know what it... I mean... I, I was just, you know, kind of vibing out whatever on set, and then I'd read like, "Oh, I really liked you. You played that jerk in the movie." I was like, "Oh, apparently I was a jerk. <laughs> Maybe I'm a jerk." Um, but yeah, no, no, it was great. I mean, I, I've been friends with Kumail for a, a while, and Emily, um, who both wrote the mm -hmm. script, and um, it was just a great. It was just a more traditional stand-up. Yeah, right, right, kind yeah. of humor and and uh, and. Uh, maybe a little bit less introspective than you said. Yeah, yeah, over I the see, yeah he was more of a surface sort of dweller, I think. <laughs> but very good as well. So if you, you came to film, then it kind of was this evolution. What what films, what what filmmakers were influences for you? Um, for this movie, you know, it's a, it's a young uh, woman's story. Uh, um, so, you know, Marissa Silver has this wonderful film, Old Enough, and uh, Andrea Arnold's film, and Julia DeCorna's film last year, Raw, mm -hmm. was pretty influential. Which and, Andrea Arnold film? Um, Fish Tank, Tank, probably, yeah. you know, mostly for this film. Um, and, you know, Cassavetti's stuff, and I, I just liked, you know, like the first real movie I felt like I saw that it made me fall in love with movies was like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. And just, I've always fell in love with performance and sort of chaotic, naturalistic, exciting mm -hmm. performances on screen. So um, that's what I'm sort of, that's what I'm influenced by. I'm sure. influenced by the performances that directors get out of, actors mm -hmm. as opposed to just you know stylistically one of the films you mentioned during the q a that followed the screening at the chicago critics film festival here was you mentioned trey edward schultz film Krisha. yeah that film is a family reunion movie that turns into an all-out horror film right? yeah and yours is a coming-of-age movie that doesn't turn into a horror movie but certainly has its fair share of dread yeah yeah uh, right and, and one of the connections i think for me is the way the audience watching both films perceives the world at all times from the perspective of that that yes. main character yeah, that course. main character and sometimes their psyche is a little bit uh fractured a little intense uh, yeah, a little yeah. a little heightened so how important was it for you to present that world to us as viewers all the time through that yeah, I mean, that was the impulse to want to make something very, very subjective. I mean, my initial impulse for the, how the film would feel would be just completely docu-style. Um, 
And then I realized that like a completely naturalistic approach to the filmmaking was actually less real than something slightly more stylized. Mm-hmm. That how, what she's feeling is a little more intense than just what it, what what would be shown if you filmed it naturally. So, um, and and, and Creech is a great example of doing that—a film that feels mm-hmm. very very natural and real, but has a sort of heightened style that actually makes the emotions of the central character feel truer than Mm -hmm. just coldly observing them. Um, And that was very important. I mean, the whole point was sort of, can we take a young kid's emotions as seriously as she does? Mm -hmm. Um, And can the audience feel them as seriously as she does? Not to make her experiences smaller by being nostalgic or looking back as adults, but really to, you know, sort of handcuff the audience to her and, and force them to walk through her story moment to mm-hmm. moment. And, and the music really is a key part, the score of mm. that heightened style and, and that sense we have as viewers watching the movie. And that's maybe not a surprise for anyone who's familiar with your work, knowing your musical background and talent. But you talked about that in, at the Q&A. I assumed watching it that, and even before it, that you probably did the music. Yeah. That would have been one of the challenges that you wanted to take on with the movie, but right. it didn't work out that way. No, no. I mean, I wrote a bunch of temp music for it, uh, just because, just as sort of a placeholder. Um, but uh, again, like I, my, my, I didn't want to wear a bunch of hats just to wear the hats. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. didn't need to be the c- composer just cause I could do it possibly. Um, I felt like the temp score I wrote was tonally correct, but not competently where I wanted it to be. And um, I stumbled on this composer, Anna Meredith, who's a Scottish composer, classically trained, and has started sort of doing electronic music on the side. And she just, she writes the music I wish I could if I was a genius, but mm-hmm. she's she's a genius. And, and her music is just very, it's hard to find, one, it's hard to find electronic music that's that's warm. And I wanted to find electronic music because it's a digital story, mm-hmm. but I, but electronic music can often be kind of aggro and mechanical. And she writes music that's very warm and accessible, and yet she's taking big swings and big risks. You know, there are the sort of stuff she does with time signatures and, mm-hmm. and, and switches, and it, she, she, her impulse is to be very big and theatrical, and I wanted the score to be foreground music, not background music. I wanted to activate the story and make the story more intense and mm-hmm. more alive. Coming-of-age films typically can make very good use of popular music. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds like that was not something you you wanted to go down that path. We wanted the sounds of popular music okay. or the sounds of her pop. Like right. We wanted to feel like, okay, what if you take the sort of sounds of the music she's listening to, those sort of poppy sounds, and adapt them to the structure of mm-hmm. a traditional film score. Back to the filmmaking a little bit. Uh, did you then study film at all? And, and who did you seek advice from? Before um, you appeared on set and no, I, started production, you know, I'd done some production here and there. I I made a show for MTV for a little while, and then, um, but I had I had about six or seven months when I knew this was greenlit before we actually started pre-production. So I kind of like read a book a week and watched a million <laughs> movies and just tried to like crash, give myself a sort of crash course film school as much as I could, just to minimize the amount of lessons that I knew I would learn on set. Just, um, but yeah, I mean, I I have people around me that are in the filmmaking world. My my girlfriend of six years as a director and I looked to mm-hmm. her for a lot of um, advice and inspiration and um, yeah it was I knew it was going to be a learning experience I was excited about that and I just tried to have it be a substantial learning experience but not such a substantial learning experience that all I came out of it with was lessons and not mm-hmm. a, not anything I could show to anybody right I'm always curious with 
writers and directors about scenes maybe where you envision one way when you wrote it on mm. the page and then when you were shooting it or in the editing room, it turned into something else, maybe something else entirely or just took on different depths or maybe it just became funnier. Whatever yeah. it was, was there an example? For yeah, you? I'm sure there are a bunch of examples. I mean, one that might sound over specific, but it was very uh, significant and how it played out was she goes to the pool party and, and she sort of, the idea is that she you know, comes out of the bathroom in her bathing suit. She walks up to a glass door. Mm-hmm. Then we zoom out from her view of the glass door to the pool party. And then she, we see the pool party. Then she walks out of the glass door into the pool party. And the house that we found that was totally right had the glass door on a balcony, mm-hmm. of a, a, a story above the pool party. Right. And I, I just always pictured in my mind that the glass door was on the same level as the pool party. I know that sounds very simple, but it, it, it made... Yeah, it does. It just makes such a huge difference. She's she's now like above looking into this world. That's uh, and and when she comes out of the pool party, there's like there's this like awful, weird like Cinderella type of (laughs) blocking of going down into the depths of this thing. So there's a lot of those things when you actually find, you can have very overly specific ideas of of how things are going to be blocked and shot. And and often I found that that the specific locations, if you could adapt to them, were, mm-hmm. were, were often way better than what you had in your head. Yeah. You had a great line during the Q&A about your personal connection to the material, and I'm probably going to get it wrong here, so jump in if you I would probably like. got it wrong. <laughs> but you said something like, you don't know, of course, what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl. You also don't know what it's like to be a 13-year-old growing up right now yeah. in this time, obviously. Yeah. You could have set this movie back in the 90s mm. or, or the, the time closer to when you grew up, but you would have lost the social media element, which is such a key part of the movie. Yeah. Obviously, you could have made Kayla maybe Kyle, right? You could have right. gone down that path, um, but you didn't. So, yeah. so what gave you the confidence that you could make a movie about this 13-year-old girl and that you could make it? honest and authentic. Yeah, I mean, it was really like I had no interest in, in telling my younger story. I, I had no interest in, in that period of t- I do have an interest, actually, in that period of time when I when I was 6th, um, 7th, 8th grader. That's a whole mm-hmm. separate story. I was 2003 mm-hmm. or something. It was a very strange thing. Um, that's a whole other can of worms. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't more the confidence, like, oh, can I do this? It was really like I was drawn to it, and I felt like I understood her and I felt like I had a connection with her and these kids of this time. And it felt like it was personal currently. I feel like I relate to her now as a Mm -hmm. person now much more than I did as an eighth grader. So that really the initial, like it wasn't building confidence. It was actually like feeling drawn to this person and feeling terrified. Like, oh my God, because I have all the questions you had. Mm -hmm. Like, am I the person to tell the story? What am I doing? You know, but uh, then I just made the decision that like, this is speaking to me and meaning something to me. So I I have to follow that. Mm -hmm. And then was that feeling validated when you're actually working with Elsie Fisher yes, on yes, set? Yes, yes, exactly. And like once I met her, I was like, oh, we are wired very similarly. Mm-hmm. We, we are very similar people. I understand you. You understand me. So that, that the fear went away immediately when, when she was in front of me and it was ac- an actual beating heart. At the Q&A, I know you heard a lot of praise for her performance. I'm guessing that's pretty much across the board mm-hmm. where you go yeah. with this movie because she really is remarkable. I have a hard time as a critic describing good acting. I think part of that is... <laughs> I'm not an actor. It's easy to describe terrible, bad acting. But it's easier to describe bad acting. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I want to try to get at that a little bit from your perspective because she's performing. Elsie is performing as Kayla. Kayla is always also performing to yes. an extent, like we all are every day on social media. So how did you get at those layers but still make sure that she was natural? I mean, truly, it was really like she just had to have it. She just had to have those skills, kind of. And we met with so many actors, and she was able to do that. She was able to just 
sort of maintain the sort of chaos that all kids have? I mean, if when you talk to any 13-year-old. I have a 13-year-old daughter. You do? Okay. Grade. Oh, great. She's finishing like, up eighth grade. <laughs> um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like maybe the one time where they aren't performing in, in the movie is with their, her dad is yeah. where she's actually comfortable to be mean. And, 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 and the kind of mm-hmm. idea there is that like meanness from her is actually a form of love. It's like you're the only person I'm not scared of, so mm-hmm. I will be mean to you. Yeah. I don't have the courage to be mean to anyone at school, so please let me just yell at you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like – Elsie just had that ability to maintain all of the – a lot of kid actors, when you give them a script, you know, they they take all of the things that make them interesting mm-hmm. and chaotic and fun to watch and they squash them down into a very sort of simple line reading. They, they're sad. They talk like that. And when they're happy, they talk like this, you know. And and Elsie was the one kid that could maintain what was her right. within a scene, which is just – I mean, I can't talk to it. It's it's as much yeah. a magic trick to me, having seen it okay. through the process, as anybody. I still watch it on screen and go, yeah, I, I have no idea how she did that. Those other performers are somehow externalizing it in a way that, that feels false, and she was internalizing it, but, yeah, but still exactly. expressing it. Yeah, yeah, well, she's just comfortable to be vulnerable in every moment. She's Or, or not that. She's comfortable to exist at the sort of horizon yeah. of her thought. Like, when I watch her, I go like, Wow, it really looks like a kid trying to form thoughts, mm-hmm. like a kid trying to say something, as opposed to, I think there's an impulse with actors to want to be in control, and I think great actors can let go of their control mm-hmm. and can be free and vulnerable to the moment. I don't mean vulnerable as in, like, soft and weak. I mean vulnerable as in, like, I don't know what's going to happen right now, and I'm vulnerable to whatever is going to arise in me at this moment, mm-hmm. as opposed to going into a scene with an intention and knowing what to do. That that stuff, right? It, it does not work on film when you're when you're that close. It, it it you can see right through that. The early dinner scene with father and daughter, <laughs> yeah, <it> felt <laughs> it hit very close to home. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> very close to home. Trying to just get them to respond to you in any way <laughs> with with their phone out and those, yeah, those right. earbuds in. It uh, it can be very difficult. Have you as you've been touring with the film or been going to some festivals have you been watching it with audiences because the music box crowd the line was around the block it was it was packed and uh, i'm watching with young women all around me who i honestly felt like not that there weren't things that felt true to me absolutely but also i was watching women who it felt like to me young women in their 20s they were reliving (laughs) in some ways maybe for better or worse their their adolescence and uh, I just wonder what what that's like for you uh, when you're you're taking that in as the person who wrote it and made the film but also maybe expound a little bit on something you said that I thought was really interesting during the Q&A about it being important with all the work you Mm do on on YouTube or things you do on streaming platforms or whatever to make this story to put this story and put Kayla, the character, on the big screen for yeah, people. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I do watch it. I'm mostly like popping in and out, checking the sound levels. Like I tweaked the <laughs> level nine times over really? the course of the, yeah. Um, but it's also, it, you know, I, I, I traveled around a lot doing shows in theaters and I could never fully enjoy the experience because I had to do the show. Like I would not, it, what's so wonderful about the, showing the movie is I don't have to get up and perform the movie. I right. can just watch it and, and enjoy it with other people. Yeah. And especially in these big sort of packed, raucous screenings it's it's very fun to be with everybody mm-hmm. uh, and watch them react um and in terms of yeah i mean it, it is a type of movie that on paper you know people might think should be a streaming movie or a small movie or a tv show or whatever um but to me there is a, a significance of when you see a 
image or a story on a big screen that is bigger than you, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of your phone, which is your phone is a tiny little screen that you domineer over. Right. And it makes it's, it's, I think it has to do with how we see each other online is literally the physical size of the screen. All of our – we present each other – to each other on these tiny devices. And of course our lives look so stupid and inconsequential <laughs> on this little yeah. thing. Um, so part of it was, you know, this small, in theory, quote unquote, small story of this young girl whose problems, you know, next to the problems of the culture or the nation seem very small, mm-hmm. should not, in this moment, will not, we are going to sit and she is going to be, you know, 40 feet tall in front of us. And you're going to, be humbled before the image of of this girl. Um, yeah, that, that, that's really important to me. And also just the, as our attention is more and more fractured, it feels like the, the required attention of a theater, of being in a theater has just gotten more and more valuable. You know, yeah. the, the idea of this is the one place where we are forced to turn off our phones and pay attention to something yeah. for an hour and a half. Yeah. And um, that's important to me. And I, I, I just thought we can't take human stories off the big screen. It can't just be explosions and you know, right. car chases. We also have to, there's a significance to blowing up the small and, and sitting before it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it resonated with me because certainly I, I don't even know the running time of the film. It's 90, 180 okay. minutes. No, no, yeah, 93, exactly. 93 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I felt every minute of that yeah, three yeah, hours. Yeah. No, uh, but that was the only 90 minutes or whatever all day yesterday that I, I didn't look at my phone at least. Yeah. That was it. I mean, yeah. it is a, it's, it's a, a reprieve. Instead, you looked at someone some else, look at their phone. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You mentioned the word control earlier when you were talking about uh, actors maybe sometimes trying to exert control over their yeah. performance a little bit. I want to try to get at that a little bit, so bear with me here. But it's hard not to watch your work and not think about irony. Of course, and yeah. you've even done a song uh, mm. uh, called "Ironic," um, but it's it seems to me anyway still the dominant mode of discourse these days, mm. and there are, there are reasons for that, and maybe there are some downsides to it. Being that sometimes, yeah, yeah, you never quite know where you stand with anything or what you should be grasping onto. What's serious? What's a joke? Of course, should I be offended by that? Should I not be? Should I be moved by that? Mm. It's draining, right? Mm. And oh, it's, yeah. it's really Soul messy. Empty. Yeah, and I was thinking, at least in performance, when you're on stage. You get to control that conversation mm. in the moment, right? And and I think about I think it's make happy where the crowd starts to participate a little bit, and you're like, you know, this isn't a participation thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah right. This is my show, uh, but in real life, and certainly this case with Elsie, you don't get to control. Yeah, <laughs> you don't get to control the right. audience. You don't get to control the conversation. You have to interact, uh, and and that's that makes it even more draining. So I want you to speak to that maybe if you can, but also is that one of the the things that makes performing fun uh, if that's the word that mm. that it's it's your ability it's your chance to exert that control yeah i mean well that that that's interesting um a lot to sort of go after there uh well i will say first the performance of a you know one man comedy show on stage and mm-hmm. a performance of a character in a narrative feature are almost incomparable there's like they're very very different types of performance um but at least to the irony issue, like that was sort of my way of getting at things emotionally and culturally for a long time was I sort of had, because I had to do comedy, I had to make everybody laugh every 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of impulse was, okay, I'll, I'll talk about these issues ironically and satirically. Um, and I just sort of found over the course of 10 years that like attacking the current moment ironically and satirically is pretty empty and doesn't really work 
for me and doesn't really get us anywhere or didn't get me anywhere. Mm -hmm. How do you satirize the internet? How do you satirize, I mean, oh, whatever. Like Trump, mm -hmm. satirizing Trump is such a joke yeah, to me. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, the, I, like I don't want to specifically bash any shows, but, but why not? Yeah, like, SNL. No, 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 but like the like the there's like a Trump cartoon. Oh. I've never seen it, mm -hmm. but like there's a Trump cartoon. What are you talking about? Right. You cart you made a cartoon of a cartoon. <laughs> right. Like what? Uh, yeah. It's the same thing where it's like, how do you do? How do, how do you make an ironic thing about yeah. the internet when you watch when the most ironic things you see are Old Spice commercials and Geico commercials are making and Deadpool is mm -hmm. making fun of uh, you know so like for me I, I just with this wanted to drop all of that and and try to be honest and genuine about the because the internet is self-satirizing it's self-ironic and uh or self-ironizing mm -hmm. whatever the <laughs> verb is um so yeah that 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 was the journey to this movie was and it probably does have it probably is like you're saying has something to do with control mm -hmm. letting go of control over this or not, I really wanted to make a non-authoritative statement on the internet rather than going, all right, this is, I'm going to tear apart the culture and show you what's wrong right. with it. Go, if I'm honest with myself, like the current moment just makes me feel weird in my tummy and I want to express that feeling um, and be descriptive of the moment rather than pedagogical mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. I, I, that was a great question, so I <laughs> no, gave an awful it's answer. It's kind of a long-winded one, but you did you did a wonderful job with it. So I, I want to get to two more real quick here because kind of jumping off that that answer there, even doing this show, which is a, a film criticism, and, and we're yeah. having fun, we're talking about movies for two hours, it's personal enough and there's enough of an element of performance to it. Of course, I'm on the of radio, course, right? Yes. It's it, it's a, It still is a version, it's the version of me that I like to think is articulate and actually mm. knows what he's mm. talking about, um, which isn't uh, the case every day but when it's all over I'm usually thinking about all the things yeah. I did wrong all the things I got wrong the things I should have said the things I shouldn't have said I rarely listen to any of these shows even as we've done almost 700 of them because all I think about are the inadequacies of it and there's another one to do right so I'm curious what this is leading to besides me just on the couch is when you produce a special or a video or a movie what's the fear for you like what what has to go wrong or feel off for you for it to not be successful for you oh well i didn't know that that's where that was going. that's where it's going that's i mean well i will say like that question and mode of thinking is all i want to inspire in from the movie <laughs> truly yeah. like yeah i hope someone would see this movie and think of that per i'm saying like mm -hmm. people could look at you and go you are ostensibly nothing like the struggle of an eighth grade mm -hmm. girl but the way it's you the articulated tie. your yeah, yeah, exactly but the way you articulated your struggle with your own mm -hmm. profession is exactly the struggle she has with her own sense of right. expressing herself. And I think is shared by a lot of people. Yeah. And I want people to be, if you are honest with yourself, the way you sort of reconcile with your own expression and articulation is the same as mm -hmm. what she is. It's all the same thing. Um, in terms of what could go wrong, anything, all the time, everything. Yeah. <laughs> one person kind of not liking it. I mean, if I'm being completely honest sure. with myself. like, yeah. So... That's a conversation I don't even try to engage. Okay. It's, it's a part of me that I realize like is just so flawed. And like I shouldn't even try to engage with myself on those terms. Mm -hmm. Because that part of myself is the part of myself that probably was implanted in me when my sister carried me on her shoulder and said, I'm the coolest guy that's ever lived. And I've just been for you know 24 right. years trying to prove to everybody that I'm what my sister thought I was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th I mean, that is, that's the sort of internal struggle that I'm, 
I, I hopefully yes. That that's the commonality I found with her to to say sure. that the way you feel around your friends is the way I feel around my friends. The right. way you feel in your head is the way I feel in my head. Um, and I look to you and everyone else for that answer sure. as much as way quicker than wanting to give it. I have yeah. no answer to that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the the <laughs> so, Q and A, no. <laughs> the Q and A last night, it ended really perfectly with another moment that was in its own way an act of performance. An eighth grade kid was in the line to ask a question. Uh, it was time for the last one or two questions. You brought him up on stage. You sat down with him. And then he asked a question that prompted, I think, one of your most thoughtful responses of the night. Not that they all weren't thoughtful, but mm. I, I thought it was one of the better ones, more insightful. And that was an experience for him, certainly. Certainly I think for it was an experience for you. <laughs> it was an experience for everyone there, myself included. And it only happened once, and it can never be duplicated. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, in some ways, the ideal performing experience yeah i mean well that's the beauty of of live theater not that you know you know i you know i'm i'm sure that that in some states what that boy asked that question in some states qualifies as theater um but yeah yeah that's the and that's what's being lost you know definitely with the internet is the sort of ubiquity of every moment where it's not just like literally every personal moment can become seen by Mm -hmm. everyone Mm -hmm. that there's no privacy um so yeah, that that yeah, it is a wonderful moment that uh, we shared all mm-hmm. that room together, and someone filmed, and I'm sure A24 will post on their <laughs> social media accounts a few months from now. They so. should, <laughs> but for now, it's only ours. Exactly. I'm going to close with uh, the film Spotting Five, rapid fire here. The last movie other than your own you saw in the theater? I saw Avengers. Okay, and I thought it was incredibly not a mess. <laughs> I was that's, I was blown perfect. away that it was not a mess. That, I was you, very impressed. I, I spent thirty five minutes saying that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here on I the show, can't so well believe done. Believe it's not a mess. <laughs> What's a movie you revisited recently? Um, Billy Madison. Really? Yeah. Okay. Which I will say it has all of the socially problematic things that all of our comedies from the nineties had. Yeah, yeah. Like incredibly, but there's something I didn't realize how much of my movie has like <laughs> Mrs. Lippy, the first grade teacher, is as right. good a portrayal of a first grade teacher ever. The principal spitting water from uh-huh. between his mouth in slow motion. Yeah, I realized yeah. I ripped that off in my movie. Again, <laughs> there's like rampant homophobia in basically everything. Sure. I mean, you, you rewatch like Friends, in your movie too, and it's like no. yeah. Oh, well, well, we'll find that. We'll find what's wrong with my no. movie in ten years, but. Um, yeah, Billy Madison. Yeah. Okay. What's an underrated movie? Something that you love that nobody else seems to enjoy as much? Um, underrated movie. I will say a really great movie on Netflix is Win It All with yeah. Jake Johnson. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah, Swanberg uh, movie. Swanberg, yeah. Jake Johnson's performance in that movie, I think, is stunning. I'm a big fan of his, And yeah. Latrulio is stunning mm-hmm. in that movie. And it hasn't been talked about. And I think that movie is un... I think, I think Jake Johnson is like, that is a... Yeah. A perfect, perfect, heartbreaking, incredible performance, hmm. that movie. What about just any random movie you love? What what first pops into your head? Um, MacGruber. <laughs> yeah? MacGruber is like <laughs> best comedy of the last decade, I think. <laughs> you said as you were preparing, last question here for your movie, you, you watched a bunch of stuff, you read a bunch of stuff. So what's your favorite book about the movies or movie making? About the movies or mov- movie making? Probably, you know, Cindy Lumet's one's good. Yeah, making movies. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, it was like, I was reading like, you know, like the cinematographer's manual. Uh-huh. I mean, I was reading like real cold stuff because sure. I felt like I like had lacked cold knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just reread Lincoln and the Bardo, which is oh, not yeah? about movie making. No, I've it's read not, that like three or four times now. And in I a just way, think like I, everyone needs to. It's read cinematic that. and it's, it is, it, it is, is, right? So it is. Yeah. Um, and that, 
That's just that's what I talk about all the time. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the movie. Appreciate. It. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Just grab my phone. How to charge it? Yeah, I mean sometimes I charge it too. But my my phone. I just because things are happening right now doesn't mean they're always gonna happen. What was in there? Just sort of my hopes and dreams. Right. I was a complete mess when I was your age. Really? Eighth grade is the worst. You never know what's next. And that's what makes things exciting and scary and fun. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? What? What? My thanks again to Bo Burnham. That really was one of my favorite conversations I've had with an artist here on the show. Hopefully, listeners agree. Hopefully, Josh, you'll enjoy it when you get a chance to dive in as well. That moment that we closed with, that moment that was ours, just me and Bo and the people who were in attendance that night, it's now going to be yours too, all the listeners. My apologies to Bo if he's listening. That question, in fact, the entire Q&A Following that screening, the movie closed the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It was filmed. It was put on YouTube. I'll put a link directly to that part of the Q&A in our show notes at filmspotting.net. The boy who came on stage, the eighth grader, asked Burnham about filming the truth or dare scene in the car. And you can hear the crowd. Everyone kind of reacts viscerally to even him just asking about it. And Bo used that question to not only answer what the boy was inquiring about, but to make a really good point about how it's probably an instructive, if uncomfortable, scene for kids to watch and parents to watch with their kids because nobody teaches kids about those types of situations. Nobody's talking to kids about how to navigate those kinds of scenarios, the power dynamics, the sexual dynamics. You're learning about anatomy. You're learning about what's happening to your body. You're not learning about how all those changes can manifest themselves and put kids in some really tough situations in the real world. And that scene is one of the main reasons why I said this movie was harrowing. Yeah. Uh, But I don't want to make it sound like I'm a paranoid dad either because there were other moments in this film that were equally troubling. I would put on the same category the swimming pool scene when she's getting up the courage Mm -hmm. to get in her suit and be the last one in the pool. Yeah, Bo talks about that a lot. And that, for me, was equally wrenching to watch as a parent. I think, you know, overall, and again, these thoughts are really fresh, having just come out of the screening, I will say, though that's my first impression, reflecting on the overall experience and also having eighth grade swirl as we've been putting together these lists alongside so many other screen portraits of this age and these sorts of interior struggles that kids have. I find this to be ultimately a lot warmer than most of the other films and uh, ultimately, you know, more comforting, even as it does recognize the the real uh, tiptoeing towards trauma (laughs) that that can happen for kids at that age. So I think that's a unique quality to eighth grade Mm -hmm. in terms of this genre, if you want to call it that. Well, it sounds like then you did enjoy the film. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Saw it with Debbie. And so it was, you know, we were... um, talking a lot about our own experiences right out of the theater, how they compared to what is going on with this family, different dynamics in a lot of ways, but still a lot of universal stuff here. 
anyone who's gone through middle school, which is pretty much everyone, right. is going to resonate with this. But if you're a parent, it does have that additional level of resonance for sure. I think there are a lot of great comments he made during the interview, things we could dive into a little bit more. I think I'll save a lot of that stuff for another show if this movie does come up again. But I want to acknowledge that description he has in the interview of Elsie as Kayla and what makes her so good. And that line, which I've just never heard it put this way before, and it's so brilliant. She's comfortable to exist at the horizon of her thought. That idea of listening, of constantly seeming, the ultimate trick, the magic trick of acting, which is to look like you are legitimately, honestly, authentically reacting in the Mm -hmm. moment to something you weren't expecting and you don't know what you're going to say next. That is the trick of acting. And she lives on that precipice. That's the way Burnham put it. Which is perhaps particularly important if you're portraying a teenager or an adolescent when a lot of times those thoughts blurt out before they've been fully processed, right? That's Mm -hmm. part of it. So to make that seem natural uh, is very impressive. And I think the YouTube video scenes are among the most impressive because even though they're supposed to be comically banal in some ways – Think of the number of levels that she has to hit there because mm-hmm. it's first the performative aspect. First, it's the character, right? right? Just being Kayla. Then it's the performative aspect of being on YouTube for your quote unquote audience. Then it's the level of she's enacting a fantasy, right? Or a fantasy is maybe too strong a word. A, a rosier projection. The, her life as she wishes it were. Yes. So those are multiple things going on that this young actress is managing to pull off while a direct address to a camera with dialogue or maybe some of it is improvised that absolutely feels like a kid who may have her note cards there outside of the hmm. camera's lens, but is still kind of coming up with this as she goes. It's really impressive stuff. I will just point out something I didn't get to in the interview. Otherwise, I got in all the questions I had prepared and then a bunch of others that came up in the moment. I wanted to ask him just because I would have thought he'd be great to throw this at and see how he responded. There's a character in the movie named Kennedy, right, who's this acquaintance of Kayla's and she's one of those kids who's just like a kid or two that we all grew up with who seems gloriously lacking in self-awareness and they just seem to have all of their stuff together all the time no neuroses or anxiety and I've always wondered I wanted to hear what Burnham said whether or not those people truly do have it all together and are completely lacking in those neuroses or are they just better at hiding it? I would have loved to have heard his response to that maybe another time. I also did consider, Josh, and I'm so glad I abandoned this. (laughs) I just realized how much work it was going to be and that I did not have the level of cleverness or creativity that Bo Burnham has. I considered trying to frame the interview as a meta exercise not unlike some of his stand-up, where as I was going through the interview, I vocalized all my own insecurities and fears about conducting the interview. Sort of a a counseling session? Maybe. Yeah. And it kind of turned into that anyway, but I realized that that just was not going to go well. Probably made the right Why not just have a straightforward, earnest conversation with the man? It seemed more in keeping with the spirit of Eighth Grade, which is a profoundly sincere film. Yeah, I think he probably appreciated that choice. Probably. Eighth Grade is currently out in limited release, including here in Chicago. If you're in Chicago and you're hearing this before Saturday, the 21st of July, you have a chance to see the film with Burnham in attendance Saturday 
at 7.30 p.m. at the Landmark Century Center. They will, of course, screen the film, and there will be a Q&A with Burnham to follow. Maybe if you're an eighth grader out there listening, you can end up on stage sitting on the floor, and you can ask Burnham a profound question as well. Of course, if you have seen the movie already and you agree or disagree with anything we've had to say about it, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, if you think my critical skills are a little rusty after a few weeks off, wait until you hear my acting. Massacre Theater is next. Then, in case we haven't already stirred up enough unwanted memories of middle school, it's the Film Spotting Top 5, Struggling Adolescence. Stay with us. You made a list of all your favorite things. I made a record of my faults. We stayed so far into the future. He's irreplaceable. <laughs> How can we possibly? <laughs> All right, uh, let's think of the people. Uh, <clears throat> as acting general secretary, I must uh, step up. I must, um, I must uh, take his place while he's um, on the floor. But you just said he's irreplaceable. Irreplaceable, take his place, as in assembling the central committee, of course. Good. I was testing you. Get used to that sort of challenge. So what next, boss? Simon Russell Beale and Jeffrey Tambor in the sixth best film of 2018 so far, at least according to film review aggregator Metacritic.com. That clip from The Death of Stalin, the latest movie by UK writer-director Armando Iannucci. The comedy's 88 Metacritic rating puts it in the company of some pretty good films. Black Panther, Paddington 2, and the movie we just talked about, Bo Burnham's 8th Grade. The Death of Stalin, not a film we have talked about on the show, much to the chagrin of many people who have tweeted at us about it and emailed us about it, but it is Josh one I managed to catch up with before taping next week's show, which will be our top five films of 2018 so far. And maybe a little bit of a spoiler, right now, I think I have it at about the sixth best film. Okay. 2018 so far. So it might be on the outside looking Worth in. seeing. And one of those two people we just heard in that scene gives maybe my favorite performance of the year so far. Just tell us which one. At least one of the best supporting performances of the year so far. Nope, I'm going to I'm gonna leave it as a okay. tease. It's a 50-50 call. I flip don't a know coin. how I will sleep tonight. I know. But I will try. <laughs> that is one that I have to catch up with yes. myself. The Death of Stalin. It is on the list. It's a... Not insurmountable list, but fairly lengthy one. I, what I do feel good about is that we're also asking listeners in the current film spotting poll what they think is the best film of 2018 so far. I have seen all the titles on that list, so at least I've done that homework. Here are the options. Annihilation, Black Panther, First Reformed, Hereditary, Isle of Dogs, Paddington 2, A Quiet Place, The Rider, and then we do have an other category if you want to give us a write-in vote. Yeah. 
it's not great timing here, and this seems to happen every July, because we like to plan our weekend getaway to Spring Green. We go up and see the Van Hallgrens. We go to American Players Theater. We watch some great plays. But it eats up our entire weekend right as we're trying to cram in our homework for this Top 5 Films of the Year show. And I don't know how I'm going to get it done, though I've basically decided at this point that I think I have only two titles I'm going to try to fit in, and one of them is the only one from those options I still haven't seen. I'm going to have to break down, Josh, sometime in the next two days and go see Hereditary. Here's my request. Can we do it over the weekend and all watch it together so that so that I can... Not only hold your hand, but also then let go and watch you curl up and cry like a little baby. I would love that. Okay. Let's, let's do it. Do we have to give up the second play we're seeing Saturday or, or the canoe trip? We're going to have to One choose. One of the two. <laughs> Most of those titles Josh mentioned, they are currently available to stream or rent. If you have to do some cramming as well, First Reform and The Writer, unfortunately, are coming out at the end of this month. Hereditary not coming out until September, but should still be in several theaters. In early voting, there is a front runner. But otherwise, the votes are spread pretty evenly across the board. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. You can also tell us what your favorite film of the year so far is in the form of a voicemail or audio file. Feedback at filmspotting.net or call 312-264-0744. We do love to give away passes to screenings, sometimes advanced screenings before the movie comes out or during the movie's run of engagement. If you live in the Chicago area and you like free movies, you should pay attention to filmspotting.net slash events. These two movies, the passes both came and went between recordings of the show, but hopefully people did frequent the site. We gave away passes to blind spotting. We've heard a lot of comments about this movie starring David Diggs, whether or not we were going to sue for any kind of copyright infringement. Apparently all we got in return were some passes. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Who's our attorney? <laughs> that was our compensation. We need to work on that. Also, The Wife with Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. But Josh, pretty soon, posted over at filmspotting.net will be passes to see a documentary I'm very curious to see, Generation Wealth, from director Lauren Greenfield, who gave us The Queen of Versailles. Oh, that was great. Yeah, good film. More information about those passes is available. Filmspotting.net slash events. Speaking of events, we're going to get to your meetup here in a second. I don't know if it can quite compare to the star-studded affair that was the Sharp Objects Episode 2 premiere that happened here in Chicago this past weekend. I had a chance to work with HBO on that event and moderate the Q&A with Gillian Flynn, the author of the book Sharp Objects, her debut novel. She's an executive producer and a writer on this HBO series starring Amy Adams. Chris Messina was in attendance as well. And how about the great Patricia Clarkson? We had all of them on stage, got some of my questions in, got some audience questions in as well, Josh. And You know, I took a little grief from Adam on Twitter at AdamRan underscore 90. He said, I had a great time at the Sharp Objects event on Friday. Would have liked to have said hi to Adam, but he was hobnobbing in the VIP section with Chris Messina the whole time. Now, does that sound like me? Yeah, this is what I heard. I heard that Sarah, your wife, now has a new best friend. This is true. Patricia Clarkson. (laughs) Well, so. Patty, Josh. Yeah, ex- exactly. (laughs) We call her Patty. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He's gone. We've lost him, folks. Yeah, you have. Well, <laughs> unlike Adam, at the Oslo meetup, that's how you say it. Oh, in, Oslo? Oslo, yeah. That's how we say it in Norway, Adam. 
I, I stuck with my fellow commoners. Okay. It was just myself and a handful of everyday people. I can't help it that regular, Patty's so inviting regular and engaging, folks Josh. who just like to talk movies. Uh-huh. We didn't need big names right. or fancy VIP sections. Oh. We went to a common park in public, grabbed a couple of beers. Mm. And it was kind of weird because this is like we weren't out super late. This was this was not like the London crowd. Okay. Keep me those people. My goodness, the Norwegians are more laid back, a, a, a reserved. Little, uh, reserved is the right word. So we were done. This we wrapped up so by boring. about eleven. Nice try. About eleven p.m. and it was like still light out. Everyone's uh-huh. walking around. It was craziness. Norway is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. We hit like the best weather of the year from what we were told. Um, so we really lucked out there. I don't know if I could do it all year round. But hey, in July when you're getting some sun and you can stay out late with the light, it was really beautiful. So I do want to thank those guys who came out. It was Tour, Christian, Martin, and George. You just made those names up. No. You just took them out of a Norwegian Did you see how I dictionary. pronounced Tour? Too? Yeah. It's oh. spelled oh, T-O-R. And, and, and I asked him. I didn't want to mess this up. Now, the other guys I've probably butchered. But hey, Tour, I know. Sorry, guys. We talked about the show, of course. Got some good feedback. Maybe I'll share with you. A lot of Tarantino talk. I Mm. forget how it went that direction, but Mm. it did, which is always fun. Most importantly, uh, they helped me appreciate there are some very alarming sculptures at Vigeland Park. Uh, I'm just going to – this is how you spell it, Mm V-I-G-E-L-A-N-D. I'm going to let listeners Google that and alarm themselves. But George described them as – I think – I'm sorry, George, if I'm misquoting, but comforting and hopeful, which told me a lot about my Norwegian heritage. (laughs) Check out those sculptures. Christian, I do have to say, um, he not only bought a copy of Movies Are Prayers from me, he gave a cash donation. I'm rustling through my bag. <laughs> you're just yeah. going through. You're just I, pulling I, out yeah. dollar bills. No, I, I meant to have this ready for you because I want to show you. I okay. had to carry this cash through customs. I was afraid something was going to – this is a generous donation that Christian gave. Okay. I, I, you don't have to read the amount, but you know, maybe Christian can check with you and make sure okay. make sure every bill is uh, there. Did you hear that thud? It was, did you hear the yeah, thud? I'm not kidding on you. The console. I'm sweating in the customs line, just thinking what <laughs> it is does gonna happen look here. Look like you're a drug mule or something. <laughs> and here's Very a handwritten generous. note. A handwritten note. Okay. Dear film spotting, you have gone from being entertainment on my way to work to something that needs to be savored for the weekend. Your sunny disposition and enthusiastic arguments always manage to put a smile on my face. Keep up the good work, Christian Christensen. And th- this goes in the show coffers. Here, it it's, does. It's yours. So fantastic. Thank you, Christian. Thanks to everyone who did show up for that uh, that meetup. It was a lot of fun. Well, I was going to say that Adam's accusation against me on Twitter, not totally accurate. I managed to meet up with a handful of very nice film spotting listeners who came up and talked you to let, me. You let them in the VIP Yeah, section? I let them in. Well, oh, no. That was nice of no, you. No, I ventured outside it, of course. But Adam must have missed the part where after my long conversation with Chris Messina, Sarah and I, and actually friend of the show, Angelica Bastien, sat on the couch for at least the next 90 minutes just listening to Patty Clarkson tell stories. Patty. Patty. At one point, Patty took off her gorgeous yellow heels and made my wife try them on. So how many people can say that? Patty's also insisting that I buy my wife a pair of those. Oh, she wasn't going to give them to her. You, you've got to no. go get your own. No, it's, okay. it's supposed to be a gift from me. Well, there, there's that your money cash. will go a Chris, long way. Christian. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> it probably wasn't what you envisioned, but no. <laughs> you are buying Mrs. Kempinar some new expensive Hollywood shoes because that's the kind of show we are now. It really was surprising 
honestly, Josh, just how fun she was and how much she just wanted to chat. Told stories about working with De Palma on The Untouchables, which I didn't even remember her in The Untouchables, frankly. I haven't seen the movie in two decades, but she plays Kevin Costner's wife in that film. And it was her first film role right That's out right. of Yale. And she talked about how De Palma actually insisted to the studio that she needed to be in the courtroom scenes that they were filming at the end of shooting, even though she wasn't supposed to be there per the script, he insisted that Mrs. Ness needed to be there. And it basically saved her life by giving her more time on set and, of course, more money that she desperately needed. But all three of them really were just so lovely, Gillian, Chris, and Patricia Clarkson. And I had a blast, and I'm happy to have had the opportunity to work with HBO. I want to thank Lorraine Anderson there and everyone else who made it possible. And, of course, all the listeners who came out and supported us. It was a packed house. Do you think you could get Patty to come play Massacre Theater sometime? Oh, man. How fun would that be? That'd be pretty She fun. would do it in a heartbeat, honestly, if she was in town. She just seems like that kind of person. Angelica, I mentioned, was there. And I don't think this was part of her assignment. I think... The story I heard was Patricia just enjoyed talking with her so much because Angelica's doing a profile on her, a big piece on Patricia Clarkson for, I think, New York Magazine. Nice. And she'd already had one long conversation with her before. They met at the New Orleans Film Festival. Patty's from New Orleans originally, heard a lot about that. And, of course, with her being in Chicago, she invited Angelica to be there. And so we got to hang out. I haven't actually co-hosted a show with Angelica before, so that was my first opportunity to really get to know her. Yeah, she's been on twice with me. She's great. Yeah, she really is. And as we're talking about great actors like Patricia Clarkson and Chris Messina, we're going to now sully that with some terrible acting in Massacre Theater. The part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. It was a few weeks back when the AV Club's Katie Reif and I massacred the scene. Who the hell are you? And where did you get that goddamn clown suit? Cleveland? Uh, actually, yes, sir. I did uh, get it in Cleveland. What the hell are you doing in my office? Well, I, I, I came to talk about my job. The only job you're going to get in here is pushing up daisies from a pine box. Now get out. So Johnny Depp there is William Blake and the great Robert Mitchum. Katie got to play Robert Mitchum. It was actually his final film role as John Dickinson in 1995's Dead Man, written and directed, of course, by Jim Jarmusch. That massacre was part of episode 687 when Katie and I reviewed the Mia Vasakovska, Robert Pattinson starring Damsel, and we also shared our top five women in Westerns. Michael Roche in Leonia, New Jersey, writes, Josh really channeled a stuttering Johnny Depp from Dead Man. The tie-in was that, like Damsel, the film is a neo-Western that undermines the tropes of the genre. Is that what you guys were going for, Josh? Of course. Yeah. Okay. I think that was the, the first idea there. Andre Cadeau from Charlottesville, Virginia, wrote in, The Josh slash Katie version of Massacre Theater was from Dead Man, which I saw for the first time earlier this year thanks to Film Spotting Madness. Being an unconventional Western, Dead Man fit nicely with your review of Damsel. As for other connections, Adam specifically compared the two movies the week before. Also, both films feature veteran actors in their 70s named Robert. This is a good one. Dead Man has Robert Mitchum. Damsel has Robert Forster. Indeed. Mm. In, in the really good, probably one of my favorite parts of the movie, the prologue of Damsel. Okay. Forster's great. Alex from Norway has a point of parliamentary procedure for you, Josh. Are you allowed to massacre a film mentioned in the episode? Well, if this is the same Alex from Norway I'm thinking of, I have a question for him. Yeah? Is it rude when someone comes to visit your country and offer to meet with you to say, well, I would, but you're on the wrong coast? That's true. I saw that comment. I couldn't believe Just it. Just left you hanging. Now, 
to to Alex's credit, like that getting around in Norway supremely difficult. Is so it? he probably would have had to take like a cruise on a fjord, then get on a train, and then a bus to the plane to see me on the other coast. You just wanted to say fjord. Oh, the fjords. Magical. I Adam. bet. I bet. My, honestly, the highlight for me, mm. cruising down the fjords. <laughs> Alex, there is a long tradition of ruining Massacre Theater by mentioning the film earlier in the episode. Just ask our producer, Sam. Josh, reach into the not-at-all-brimming film spotting hat, but way more brimming than I gave you guys credit for. I think I predicted that we would get seven entries. There'd be seven people who would what's, correctly identify Dead Man. What's the number on brimming? Give me a brimming number. I, a brimming I still don't understand I what mean, that means. I mean, a few hundred, at least. Okay. We got 37. 37. Yep. Not so brimming. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but reach in. And pick out this week's winner. The winner is Mike Cahotis, formerly of Gilberts, Illinois. He now resides in Deerfield, Illinois. Yeah, we've heard a lot from Mike recently on the show. I think he likes to comment on our polls quite a bit. Congratulations, Mike. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. What happened to the canola line? You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey. I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We move on now to this Mad Libs edition of Massacre Theater. We're basically completely rewriting the script to not completely what? give it away. Well, we're changing a few all names All the names, here. all the proper nouns have changed. There's like <laughs> seven of them, Josh. <laughs> I, I saw a note came through just oh, before yeah. we started recording on Slack. I'm in eighth grade. <laughs> you're, you're so upset about I these am. name changes. It's ruining your process. I love what Sam did here. It's pretty clever. This is great stuff. Okay, well, we'll see what the listeners think. Okay. I mean, he is playing with a sacred text here. (laughs) This is true. Okay. Yeah, this is very true. I also want to point out, I don't know if this will help you or not, but you you get to actually do bad acting here in your part. Oh, really? Yeah, this is— You're making a judgment call here? Oh, oh, yeah. Even I recognize this. (laughs) Wait, and yet yet the actor playing your role is nailing it? Uh, Well, no. No, I wouldn't. Nailing it is a little strong, but in comparison to the performance you're going to try to imitate. Okay. From what I understand, it's harder to purposely give a bad performance than give a mm. good performance. Well, I, I wouldn't know. So We'll never know. But so let's see what you do I'm going to try to be comfortable at the horizon of my thought. I think that is the way to go. Okay. You start. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Um, wait. <clears throat> okay. And action. Don't you guys see? Don't no, you no, realize? You got to say the name. You gotta say the oh, name. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Which we did change here, too. Yeah, okay, okay here okay, we go. Start. And action. Oswald Cobblepot. Don't you guys see? Don't you realize? He was a pro. He never made it this far. Look how far we've come. We've got a chance. A chance at what? Getting killed? Look, if we keep going, someone's really gonna get hurt. Maybe dead. Besides, we gotta get to the police. Maybe Rudy already got to the police. Maybe Rudy is dead. Don't say that. Never say that. The fighting Irish never die. I'm not a fighting Irish. I want to go home. And And see. see. You were too good, Adam. You think so? You were too good. (laughs) 
<laughs> if you know what film we just massacred by pitching our voices slightly higher, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 6th. I am predicting, despite all the confusion with the names, I'm predicting way more than 37 entries. Are we going to brim? Will we have some brim? I think we will brim. Oh, the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Oh, that's Elvis's? That's actually his Rolls Royce. Damn straight it is. Oh, my God. The trailer there for the new documentary, The King. It's directed by Eugene Jarecki, who made, among other things, the very good The House I Live In. The King is set against the 2016 election. It chronicles a road trip in Elvis Presley's 1963 Rolls Royce. Now, there is a quote in the trailer that we didn't play there. (laughs) If Elvis is your metaphor for America... We're about to OD. Yeah, I needed to re-listen to that, but I'm pretty sure that's David Simon of The Wire fame okay. who makes that comment. And yes, Eugene Jarecki made the very good, as you said, House I Live In about our criminal justice system and U.S. drug policy. He made Why We Fight about the military-industrial complex and American foreign policy. He made a doc about Reagan. He makes movies about capital A America. In this case, specifically, he's focused on the so-called American dream. And instead of making a movie about Elvis where his life and career is the text, let's say, and what his career and legacy says about America then and now, especially with regard to race, is the subtext, if you will. He's really made a movie here where America and the legacy are the text and Elvis's life and career are the subtext. Elvis is a metaphor for Jarecki and some others for our racial divide and our collective disillusionment with the American dream. Now, within that metaphor is another one. As you mentioned, he is driving that 1963 Rolls Royce that belonged to Elvis, and they're stopping in spots that have an Elvis connection. So they hit Memphis and Nashville and L.A. and Vegas and, of course, Tupelo, Mississippi, where he was born. And they talk to various artists and pundits, and sometimes they just have artists play music in the back where Elvis sat. I just finished this last night late. I'm still processing it, but I'll say it's a mostly fascinating puzzle of a movie. The whole Rolls-Royce conceit is pretty half-baked, and so we get a moment like the one where he's with the head of his road crew, because they obviously have to have a crew here to handle all the shooting that's going on in the car, and the car does break down. It's a 1963 Rolls-Royce. So he's got this guy who's driving, and Jarecki's in the passenger seat. I think the camera's in the back, and we get a moment where Jarecki is on camera, and he's not on camera a ton, though he is a character in this story. And he says to the road crew manager, something like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here with this movie, (laughs) you know, and I'm tempted to really scoff at it because it's kind of that moment where he's acknowledging that to the audience. So maybe we all kind of let up a little bit and go, okay, well, he's going to figure it out or he doesn't even know exactly what he's doing. But I will acknowledge that I think the only reason that's really there in the movie is because he really liked the part that came after it. It sets up the fact that he then asks the road crew guy just kind of randomly, what do you think? What do you think we're doing? What do you think of this idea of the American dream? And he gives a pretty good answer. So I think that's the only reason maybe that line is still in there as opposed to maybe trying to let himself off the hook a little bit. But does anybody, Josh, really need to see Alec Baldwin 
mock an annoying selfie taker and then express a couple of smart but pretty standard political messages and then have that all culminate with him looking right into the camera and say, I don't know when this film's going to come out, but Donald Trump is not going to win. He is not going to win. I mean, he's pretty much there in this film to be kind of obnoxious and then be dead wrong in predicting how things would turn out. Now, of course, there are other voices that are more interesting. Van Jones, the great Ethan Hawke, who you're going to hear on Film Spotting in a couple months, Chuck D, even Mike Myers, Mike Myers. And there's this meta moment where he's introduced looking right at the camera, laying on a sofa, and he looks at the camera and says, Hi, I'm Mike Myers. You're probably wondering why I'm in this movie. And it it really does stand out. But you know what? Mike Myers, being an outsider, being from Canada, his observations about the U.S. and democracy are really astute. And almost everyone else is more compelling of a figure. I don't know that the experiment here totally works. I even think Eugene Jarecki might admit that it doesn't totally work. But I like that it is an experiment. I like that he's going for something completely non-traditional as far as documentaries go. I like that visually it's more than just talking heads and archival footage. The compositions and the editing are staged and fussed over in a way that isn't traditional for docs at all. There's a lot of great match cuts. They clearly took time to consider transitions and consider connections between scenes, sometimes across time and space, and make that connection clear visually. If you want to find out whether or not Jarecki does think his movie all holds together, if the experiment is successful, you might just have a chance to ask him if you're here in Chicago. It is playing at the Music Box starting this weekend. He's going to be there opening night. So if you do hear this in time to make it there, you might get a chance to see that Q&A. We will link to more information about that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. The Brentons traveled all the way from Texas to Minnesota. Most of that part of the country saw their first projected images at a Breton show. It is absolutely stunning. It is Melies, and that's exactly the film. We have a new one. <laughs> How could I resist a documentary about movies and Iowa made by a Grinnell College alum like me, no less? That's a clip from the trailer for the new documentary Saving Britain, which plays at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. This weekend, the film is about a rural Iowa history teacher who is sitting on a treasure trove of turn-of-the-20th-century films, including a long-thought-to-be-lost Melies film, belonging to one of America's first motion picture impresarios, Frank Britton. He and his wife, Indiana, were basically barnstormers with a movie projector between 1895 and 1909. I'm very happy to bring on a co-director of Saving Britain, Andrew Sherburn. Andrew, thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So people will hear this first Friday morning. You have four showings at the Siskel, Friday, Saturday, Monday, and Wednesday. I do want to point out that depending on when people hear this, they might be able to make it to the Saturday evening screening. You'll be there along with your co-director, Tommy Haynes, and the film subject, Michael Zaws. We will talk a lot more about him here in a moment, and we will link to more details about that screening and Q&A in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. But in addition to making this movie. You're the associate director of Iowa City's film scene. And I do want to start there real quick. What is film scene? Because you pretty much pulled off what I always imagined someday doing back when I was a film student living in Iowa City. You helped start an art house movie theater that is getting the kind of stuff cities like Chicago typically get. Yeah, it's been such a wonderful journey. Uh, we're about to turn five years old officially. 
in a few months. And uh, I can't believe how quickly it's gone. And I can't believe how long it's been at the same time. But it's, it's been so much fun. I mean, like you, I came to Iowa City, and I was wondering where the full time nonprofit art house cinema was. And uh, it turns out there wasn't one at the time. So, uh, so we had to start one. And um, it's just been amazing to see the kind of community support. And I imagine that there's plenty of people around the country that, that have an art house in their, uh, in their city or their you know, small town. And, and hopefully they, they support it and support it well, because I think that's where a lot of the, the future of great cinema it happens at those art house cinemas. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's where community comes together. That's where you get to see these films on a big screen with either a room full of strangers or your best friends. And it's just an experience that, that we have to keep alive and we have to treasure and uh, we have to celebrate. And it's been a delight to be able to do that here. Congratulations on the success with it. I've only been there once, I think. I do get back to Iowa City quite a bit with my family. I have some family who lives in the area. I think I talked about it briefly here on the show once i managed to take my kids to see the kid you were showing a chaplain movie early on a saturday morning and this was maybe three years ago so i want to say my my son quinn was maybe seven or eight and the scene where the boy gets taken away by the authorities gets taken away from chaplain he just burst into tears sitting there in the second row of film scene it was it was a more memorable film going experience and i'm glad i had it that's great. I mean, it's it's it's, I, it's not great that he was crying, but it's great. <laughs> I know what you mean. So you pulled off another dream of mine. Now, of course, you made a feature documentary. This is actually your fourth movie. Let's get to the subject of the film, Michael Zaz and his collection. How did you discover him? Well, as you noted, uh, Iowa, uh, Eastern Iowa doesn't have a lot of huge film culture. There's a lot of people that are hungry for it, but uh, it wasn't kind of baked in. And so in addition to, uh, you know, doing art house cinema, my co-director Tommy and I are probably two of the only folks working here as, uh, you know, more or less uh, full-time filmmakers. And so we get calls on occasion. And this was just one of those amazing stories that somebody picked up the phone and and thought to call us and tell us about. And we were initially just interested in the films themselves. I mean, we're film buffs. And the fact that there were George Melies films and Thomas Edison films and Lumiere films just uh, stones throw away from us was like, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's go right now. So we went down and we visited Mike. And um, what we discovered there was that there was so much more to this story. Um, it wasn't just, hey, there's this this lovely historical story that took place 110 years ago. It was, wow, something's happening in real time right now. There's this incredible character that is so easy to fall in love with. And he's doing something really special, which is keeping this history alive and keeping this community alive. And we wanted to capture that. And so we were fortunate enough that Mike was game for it and kind of we just took off right away. So when did you know that it was a movie? Well, as you said, this is our fourth feature. We've we've made a short film in in between. But I, I think that's kind of always our intention is, you know, when we find a story, we just ask that to ourselves right away. Like, does this thing have legs? And it is a big commitment, of course, to make to any story. Because this film has, you know, its lifespan has been over five years now. So we're careful. But at the same time, kind of we're always hungry for for that next story. And this one, I think it was pretty early on. I mean, the film certainly morphed a few times while we were making it. We saw new things. We learned new things. The story took new directions. Um, We got to know Mike better. 
But I think we always knew that there was something there early on. How did you then shape it as a documentary? Because it's a movie about, as the title suggests, and as we've talked about, saving this footage, keeping alive the legacy as well of Frank Britton. But it's also just as much about, and arguably more so, a portrait of Michael Zaz. And then through Michael and the movies, we get something larger, I think. It becomes a meditation on the passage of time and why we value the things we do, maybe why we should value some things more than we do. So how did you think about the structure of that and all of those different themes and ideas? Yeah, well, uh, that's very astute. I mean, there are, there are a lot of layers to the film, and I'm glad that people pick up on them. I mean, that was, that was always our hope, and, and we've been rewarded that people have kind of identified some of those bigger themes. And, um, you know, I think those came about organically. Initially, I mean, the film's development kind of followed our own development. So we were early on just interested in these films. You know, they're amazing. And they're so old that they're new again. So they're marvelous just to see these on a big screen, especially. But then we we got to know Mike and we saw how integral he was to that community and how he keeps so many people connected through his activities and, and by showing these films and bringing them back out into the community. He really brings people together. And then, as you mentioned, you know, he's he's a great lover of history and legacy is, is such a, an issue that he's always thinking about. And um, we just thought those were those were great topics for a film. And we really wanted to expose both Mike's appreciation for history, the way he keeps it alive. And then we wanted to show people a little bit of what Eastern Iowa looks like. Mm -hmm. I think people have probably seen some stereotypical uh, images of the Midwest. Some of those aren't so flattering. So we wanted to borrow some of those and kind of repurpose them and, and present them in a new light and show that there there's some amazing things happening here in, in Iowa. It's not just flyover country, but uh, there's a lot of culture here. And it's something definitely worth celebrating. And, and I think it's universal, really. I love that even in what is potentially a kind of throwaway moment, even it's about time. He's visiting his mom early in the film. She's in a nursing home. I think it's in the first scene where we meet her and he notices that her clock is wrong. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you saw the poignancy of that in the moment and how that tied into the film, the the larger film you were making, or is that something you noticed in the editing room? Yeah, definitely in the editing room. I think that's one of, uh, of the challenges and the joys of documentary filmmaking is that you're really constructing your story almost after you've shot the entire thing. And so looking back on these scenes, they took a little bit, you know, we saw them in a new light oftentimes. And, and that was one of those, those happy small moments that we had a lot of really that said something that, that said something in a small way that some people might not catch. But if you do catch it, I, I'm glad that, uh, you know, that is stuck with you because mm -hmm. Mike's conscious of, of the passage of time kind of always, he sees the history no matter where he is, you know, he, it, it's not something that happened in the past. It's something that's very much present. And he's also thinking about the future. And so he's in an odd way, a bit of a time traveler. And I think that was that was just one of those moments that that reflected the way that he sees the world. Do you have a favorite moment that you captured that made it into the final film? Oh, wow. Um you know, I think there's a few moments. There's a moment towards the end where, which is a bit of a celebratory moment where, where Mike is showing these films in this grand old movie theater that happens to be the oldest operating movie theater in the world that happens to be in the same town that Mike is, is in. And, 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 you know, there he is on stage with all of his, his community members and they are giving him kind of a standing ovation. And still he's, kind of deferential. He says, you know, this isn't about us. This is about something that happened 100 years ago, a century ago. Uh, and we just need to appreciate that because it wasn't appreciated enough at the time. 
And I think that's just a great kind of reflection of his humility and kind of the way that he goes through life. And he, he's not doing these things for his own edification. He's, he, he's doing it because he thinks it matters and he thinks mm-hmm. it matters to him, but, but to other people. And, and that was a beautiful moment. There's also kind of a, a funny moment early on in the film where, you know, he's hosting someone to take a look at this collection and the guy just doesn't have nearly as much appreciation for it as he did. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just this moment that I think is <laughs> is emblematic of 30 years of kind of butting your head up against endless uh, closed doors and wishing people could see what you see. And I think that that moment is funny, but uh, he gets past it. The getting past that moment is, is when the film takes on a little bit more momentum. And uh, and finally, after so many years, he, he really gets the attention for this collection that it deserves. Yeah, I'm laughing because I do remember the moment. I may not get the line exactly right, but I think it's when the guy is interviewing him, right? And he's not there very long, and then he leaves, and the camera's on Michael, and he says something like, I thought he'd have more questions, or I thought he'd stay longer. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought he'd spend much more time. Yeah, exactly. Well, I really did enjoy the movie, and we should point out that the theater you were referencing, if people are going through the area, the State Theater, right? And it's in Washington, Iowa? Yep. Yeah, it looks gorgeous. I have not been there myself. But Michael Zaws, a fascinating character, and I knew nothing about Frank Britton. So I learned a lot from the film, which did premiere at AFI Docs and was an official selection of Doc NYC last year. It was an official selection at the Rotterdam Film Festival this year, and Chicago listeners can see it at the Gene Siskel Film Center starting this weekend. You can learn more at Britton Film. Andrew, I wish you all the best of luck with the movie and with future films and with film scene. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time you come through Iowa City. Absolutely. I don't think there's anything we could do that would be as big of a leap as what it was for somebody to come in from the field and go and watch a movie. I don't think we could wow people like that anymore. I'd sure like to give it a try. Our thanks to Andrew Sherburn for coming on Film Spotting. He did give us a couple of passes to Saving Britain if you want to see that this weekend at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Go ahead and email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, for a chance to get your hands on those. Yeah, two pairs of passes so you can bring a guest with you. All right, ready to return to middle school, Adam? Not at all. The Film Spotting Top 5 Struggling Adolescence is next. Stay with us. So many times too They either give you space To come and find you I've resigned to being here To remind you Of shadows that you can't let go
We're going to get to a quick donation. Thank you here in a moment. But you're hearing the sounds of Zach Clark, his new single, Love You Later. Zach Clark, a brand new artist to me, got a text from friend of the show, Sam Smith. You know him from The Poster Boys. He's done a bunch of artwork for the Criterion Collection, just a really talented artist and really talented musician, played drums with Ben Folds, and now he's playing drums with Zach Clark. They're out on the road. They were in Chicago this past weekend. I believe I tried to get you out, Josh, but you were still claiming jet lag or something ridiculous. I was still suffering. I tried to shame you into coming out and not being an old fogey in the suburbs. It didn't work, but Sarah and I had a wonderful time and heard some wonderful music. I'm a big fan now of Zach Clark. And for people who might be listening right here on Friday when this show drops, I know we've got film spotting listeners all over New York. He's playing in New York at the City Winery upstairs tonight. Then he's on to Philly, Vienna, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Atlanta on July 28th. If you like what you hear, you can get the full tour listings at meetmewhenthemoongetsfull.com. We will also link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We do want to take a moment to thank all of our $2, $5, and $10 monthly donors and donor Andrew Barnard, who decided, Josh, to contribute $2 a month. And then, I'm not sure why, he decided to update his subscription to a platinum donation. That's a platinum donation per month. Do you think Andrew maybe made a mistake? I do, actually. And I actually wrote him back to confirm what he was doing. And he's standing by it. Andrew says, since discovering film spotting, you guys have turned me on to numerous worthwhile movies. You have also greatly enhanced my appreciation for films I had seen long ago, which warrant a revisit. In short, as a connoisseur of the filmic arts, I've enjoyed hours of listening and enhanced viewing. Thanks for your passion. Unbelievable. I don't know how long the subscription will last, but, you know... We'll take it. The generosity is greatly, greatly appreciated, and we're glad you're enjoying the show so much, Andrew. A no-cost way you can help the show, rate or review us at Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, every review there really does help us reach new listeners, and we are going to thank this week just one listener, Josh. Yukata Dog? What do you think? Uh, You know where they have Yukata Dogs? No. Norway. Do you eat them while on a fjord? No. No? You you ride them to hunt whale. I'm sorry, honey. I just we're having a. What grade are you in now? Eighth. Are you in the eighth grade? Our producer Sam requiring that we refer to that short exchange from 1988's Midnight Run as being from the single greatest scene in the history of movies. Well, I'm glad you're naming him, so he's the one out on that limb. He is, though Film Spotting is out on the limb of putting that movie in the Pantheon. Yes, Midnight Run is in our Pantheon. Robert De Niro there as the estranged dad and bounty hunter Jack Walsh, reconnecting with his teenage daughter. That eighth grade line, just too good to pass up for this show as we are going to share our top five struggling adolescence. I don't think ultimately that scene would be enough to qualify Midnight Run for this list, but a couple of other films, at least that are in the film spotting pantheon, might be eligible, Josh, and they're not going to make it. The Tree of Life. And also in America, I have a few others that I've disqualified, but first, as we're talking about eligibility, why don't you explain to our listeners after many, many, many back and forths about what this top five would be in terms of substance, Yes, what it would be called from a semantics standpoint. (laughs) 
we've we landed up, on struggling adolescents. We made up for all the weeks off. That's true. Just in trying to name. So what do we mean this top five by struggling adolescents? How did you approach your list? So broad topic. I basically tried to use eighth grade. I, I knew pretty much what it was about, even though I hadn't seen it yet. I tried to use it as a guide to help me narrow down my options. So I basically went mostly middle school age, primarily girls, and looking for characters who struggled with internal identity crises more than external forces. Now, external forces are, of course, a factor. Um, yes. And so – more of a factor in some of these picks than other ones. But basically, that was what I tried to prioritize. And it was really interesting. By the time I settled on my picks, a formula did arise for middle school suffering. Nice. <laughs> I, I could see a pattern here is if you want to have yeah. a rough experience <laughs> in middle school, you need at least you know two of these three things. And if you have all three, you're doomed. That's so funny you say that because I started to notice a pattern too and I almost considered completely revising my notes so that I did approach it. And we've both done this with some top fives over the years in terms of what's the particular affliction and how does it connect to the other people on our list, to the more common patterns that we see in these films. I abandoned that. But yes, you're certainly going to hear some recurring themes, I think, between both of our lists. And I mentioned that I disqualified a few others. On episode 613, so not that long ago, December 2016, we talked about The Edge of Seventeen starring Haley Steinfeld, and we did our top five teen girl movies directed by women. If any of these would have met our criteria, and I did approach it very similarly to you, Josh, I already threw them out. At number five, I had Fat Girl. Number four, I had The Edge of Seventeen. Three, Eve's Bayou. Two, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. And one, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. More skewed towards high school there with that list. And like you, I at least tried coming out of the gate to think of the list more in terms of characters like Kayla in eighth grade. More in that kind of 10 to 14 range. And then a few others I kicked out. Episode 292, February 2010, here on Film Spotting, our top five teen rebels. Max Fisher from Rushmore, Neil McCormick from Mysterious Skin, Joseph Gordon Levitt, great performance. Colin Smith from The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Holly, Sissy SpaceX character in Terrence Malick's Badlands. And my number one, I won't mention just yet because he just might come up on your list, Josh. Now, a couple others that I disqualified. Along the lines of those external forces that you touched on, Joan of Arc. Yeah, I saw that mentioned on social. I get it, but right. no. Grave of the Fireflies. Mm. Those aren't exactly examples of universal suffering. No. You're not going to find many patterns probably there. Maybe some touches that we can extrapolate from those films. But for the most part, those seem like outliers. But also, as we talk about external versus internal, very often, probably going to be the case with most of our choices, those internal issues are driven by those external forces. Kids often are, of course, products of their environment. So there is that interchange, and I'm sure we'll see that across both of our lists. Well, my number five is suffering from every direction. It's Nadine Nortier as Mouchette in Mouchette. I'm going mm. back to 1967 here with the eighth film from the great Robert Bresson. Mouchette is the young daughter of an impoverished and sickly family. She's got an alcoholic father, an ailing mother. She's essentially in charge of everything, including taking care of her infant brother and keeping this dilapidated home running. So this movie, you know, has a very different setting than the one we see in eighth grade. It's a rural village in France, but 
Mouchette has, in some ways, very similar experiences to what we see not only there, but in other American teen or middle school movies. We've got scenes of classmates mocking mm-hmm. Mouchette, teachers berating her, and she has the trifecta. She also has the inattentive parents. Now, yep. things do take, and here's where the external forces really start to compound. Things take a much more dramatic and tragic turn in Mouchette, but I think at the core, it's the account of a girl who's mostly ignored. I mean, think about her final act is in response to a farmer not returning a wave. Mm-hmm. She does get attention, but only when she's mocked or abused or exploited, something like that. I liked the other Rasan films in our marathon better, Adam, when we did that a few years ago. But this one, I think, really does capture the sort of adolescent loneliness and alienation that I was thinking about for this list. And I also appreciate, you know, this comes up in eighth grade and a couple other of my choices the way sexuality begins to play a part in that psychological turmoil. There's that scene with the boy in the bumper cars, and it's it's part assault and part flirtation, and the blurring of those lines (laughs) is definitely a recurring theme for the girl characters in these middle school movies. So my number five struggling adolescent is Nadine Nortier's Mouchette. I'm chuckling only because I never could have anticipated, especially as I did sub in this number five choice at the very last minute, I never could have anticipated how well our choices would line up. You just basically summed up my film, even though made at a completely different time in a completely different style about a boy instead of a girl in a very different place, but suffering from a lot of the same things we see in Mouchette. So yes, we're going to check some more of your boxes, Josh. I am going with Chiron in Moonlight, the great Barry Jenkins film that was the Best Picture winner a few years back. I don't think I've had it in a top five since it came out, and I almost excluded it just for that reason. But honestly, the first image that popped into my head when I thought about struggling teens was Chiron. And I know that all three characters are technically named Chiron, but you'll recall the chapters are Little, right. Chiron, and Black. Yeah, and Little, I'm trying to remember, is probably just before middle school, right? right? And, and, and this is a case where I think that Chiron's supposed to be maybe 15 or 16, so okay. a little older than the eighth grade we both tried to get into our list, but still very much an adolescent, still very much struggling with some of these common issues. School bullying, the inattentive mother who forces him to seek comfort in the Janelle Monet character, who was the wife of Juan, who befriended him when he was little. His mom is inattentive because she's got a crack addiction and she's a prostitute to make money. So there's that terrible home life situation. And then there are the sexual identity issues as well. I'm sure you remember the encounter on the beach with his friend Kevin and this question that hangs over the entire film Moonlight, am I a man? What kind of a man am I? And then that all culminates in its own violence. The very end of that Chiron sequence at school is so startling because that character otherwise has been so shy and so reserved. He's always hunched over. He's always got his lips kind of pursed together. He's not going to say anything unless he absolutely has to. If someone like Janelle Monet's character, who he feels comfortable with, draws it out of him just a little bit. What's wrong? Nothing. I'm good. No. I didn't good. And you ain't it. And stop putting your head down in my house. You know my rule. It's all love and all pride in this house. You feel me? I can't hear you. Do you feel me? Yeah. 
Okay. I feel you. All right. All love and all pride. And those are two things he doesn't really feel at all. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the additional identity issues that Chiron has to work through because of his time and place and wow, I mm-hmm. mean, the stuff he's got to carry is Intense, yeah. for sure. The time and place, of course, big factors in all of the issues we're discussing the 1980s in Miami. Well, I'm staying in the 1960s for my number four pick. It's The Miracle Worker with Patty Duke as a young Helen Keller. Now, this one didn't occur to me at first. Lister Thomas Johnstone actually suggested it on Twitter. And it, too, is maybe a bit of an outlier, you know, because Helen Keller, of course, is a girl in a unique situation. She's negotiating life without sight. So perhaps this is another huge external force that she has put upon her. But the internal struggles as depicted in this film are largely the same as those of other adolescents. They've just been inflated and externalized here by Helen's blindness. Consider the parent element that we've already talked about twice. Exhausted from years of failed communication, her parents have grown numb to her tantrums and complete lack of manners and sort of just let her exist and float around them and are disinterested in really finding a way to help her live her best life. So in comes Anne Bancroft's Anne Sullivan, a tutor. And then there's this tug of war between her and Helen, which is a unique variation on that struggle between any parent and their child in these precarious years. So Helen is fighting to establish her own identity, which is no longer that of a child, but not yet willing to be that of a grown-up or at least take on some of those responsibilities. And then you have Anne, who is trying to help her mold her influx identity in the direction of a healthy adulthood. Now, I'm a noted biopic skeptic, but as I've said on the show before, I really recommend The Miracle Worker. If you haven't seen it, it's far grittier than you can imagine and also really is a striking portrait of a struggling adolescent. It's a movie I need to see, actually, Josh. My number four is the movie Fish Tank. The character is Mia, played by Katie Jarvis, and this movie is what inspired that list of teen rebels back on episode 292 of Film Spotting and during my conversation with Bo Burnham. He mentioned the work of Andrea Arnold, the director, and specifically Fish Tank as a movie that he looked to as an influence when he was making Eighth Grade. It's a 2009 British film, very much kitchen sink realism. Mia is, I think, in that 14 to 15-year-old range, and she lives in a housing project. So again, the checklist, impoverished, the inattentive mother who's more focused on the guy she's bringing home. In this case, the guy is Michael Fassbender. And the sexual identity issues as well. For those who haven't seen it, I won't spoil at all where it goes. But that relationship between her and Michael Fassbender, the mom's boyfriend, who she befriends, does end up being something else she has to navigate. And that's a very kind way of putting what is otherwise a pretty disturbing situation. I looked back at my notes from this review on the show, and I made a comparison to another movie I wonder if you considered, maybe a little bit older, again, for your list, but An Education, the Carrie Mulligan film, another British film, but you really can see Mia. They're a great pairing because Mia is the complete antithesis of Mulligan's Jenny. She's lower class instead of middle class to upper class. We've got the single parent instead of the mother and father at home, the attentive mother and father at home, the functional family here. It's a completely dysfunctional family. The lack of education and education, of course, is such a key part of the Mulligan film. Just no real future to speak of for 
a character like Mia in Fish Tank. And not only is she dealing with all the issues we discussed, but she's trying to figure out if this passion that she has for dancing and what might be a talent for dancing is actually something that could translate to a way out of this place and this way of life or not. I still haven't actually seen Andrea Arnold's American Honey from a few years back. For whatever reason, just never did make time for it. But Red Road, I think her debut from 2006 is very good. This film from 2009, and then we were both big fans of Wuthering Heights in 2011. Actually, our Golden Brick winner now probably wouldn't have been eligible with those previous films under her belt, but certainly an overlooked film from that year, a really talented filmmaker, and Fish Tank was my first exposure to her. And Fish Tank, You Got Me Back. That's one I still need to see myself. At number three, I have Susie and Sam, played by Kara Hayward and Jared Gilman in Moonrise Kingdom. I did consider Ash from Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox here, but I like the one-two punch of Susie and Sam, as well as the fact that this too addresses, and controversially for some, a key component of early adolescence, negotiating sexuality. Susie and Sam have a pen pal romance at first. She lives on the island where he attends camp each summer with the khaki scouts of North America. But that romance becomes this – it's a delightful, awkward, sad, and sweet reality when they decide to run away together and live in the wild. So what unites them when they finally get together? Well, pretty much everything we've been talking about for our list. Sam's foster parents describe him as an emotionally disturbed 12-year-old and none of his fellow khaki scouts like him. Susie is largely ignored by her lawyer parents who just leave a booklet lying around titled Coping with the Troubled Child. <laughs> now, once they get together, Moonrise Kingdom does become a touching ode to that sweet and terrifying moment when childhood friendship blossoms into romance and uh, kids can feel kind of on both sides of that divide at once. I really love how, you know, Anderson's Actors always have this studied sort of archness, and Hayward and Gilman perfectly capture that. It makes their courtship both innocent and precocious. They're endearingly childish, but they also have that particularly adult existential exhaustion that marks almost all of Anderson's protagonists. So a two-for-cheat a little bit here at number three, Sam and Susie from Moonrise Kingdom. Are your foster parents still mad at you for getting in trouble so much? I don't think so. We're starting to get to know each other better. I feel we're in a real family now. Not like yours, but similar to one. I always wish I was an orphan. Most of my favorite characters are. I think your lives are more special. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. I love you too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that Wes Anderson film. My number three struggling adolescent. Well, if that's a cheat, mentioning a couple names, then I don't know what you're going to do with this one. But for me, it's all of the students we see who are in their own way kind of faceless in Frederick Wiseman's great documentary from 1968, High School. So the students at Northeast High are my struggling adolescents. This is a classic bit of direct cinema that was shot in a high school in Philadelphia in the late 60s. Wiseman, of course, our best chronicler of American institutions. He had previously done Titicut Follies, which looked at a mental institution and how patients were treated, and here a different type of place where the inmates are trying to run the asylum high school. It was shot over five weeks, and I haven't had a chance to really dive into this as there still are a lot of Wiseman films I need to see, but over at Movies Notebook, the writer Craig Keller 
I don't know if he's still doing it, but back in 2012, he was doing an ongoing series called Frederick Wiseman 300 Million Milliseconds, where he was going in chronological order of all of his films and breaking them down. And he writes this. The rambling hallways of the school make up an isolated interior that stands as a symbolic manifestation and aggravating circumstance of the isolated interiors betrayed by adolescent faces over the next 74 minutes. One might consider high school a reckoning with normalcy, merely a portrait of the way things are. At the time of release, audiences likely perceived high school as a we-can-all-relate-to-this-story. Indeed, and necessarily, the film represents a time capsule, a cinematographic record not only of those sorts of characters frozen immemorial in Lions Club halls, guilt frame photographs, but also of the attitudes and fears of an era. Only from the vantage of the future has high school assumed the form of secret look or infiltration. Nevertheless, it remains the single Wiseman film whose milieu its audience is most likely to have experienced collectively. And it's true. If you think about movies like the New York Public Library or at Berkeley, some of these other places he goes, Mm -hmm. they are only truly known by the people who have had that experience of working there or who frequent that place. But You touched on it. High school, junior high. We have all been there. And as quaint and dated as some parts of high school seem to be, there's so much of it that truly seems timeless and applies to a lot of the characters we're even talking about here on our list. One last sentence from Craig. He says, high school is about the relationship between teacher and student, not between student and student. The teenagers exist primarily as faces, and those faces are blank like the models in Brisson. Going back to your Mouchette choice, it's true. If you watch the film... Even the faces that aren't blank, the faces that push back a little bit, even if they're lacking a certain elegance, but they're pushing back on the discipline and the call for conformity that we see in this high school, they're admonished and dismissed swiftly. I have, I have a doctor's thing. I'm sick and tired of you uh, talking. You just... was in, though. I, I spoke wait, to wait, your wait, mother. You were excused. Now, look. I'm going to the doctor today. Now, look. Jeff, you were excused. You better be in a gym outfit. All right. You better be in a gym outfit. We'll determine whether you take exercise or not. We'll determine that. I'm going to tell you something. Don't you talk and you just listen. You come prepared in a gym outfit when you go to gym. Is that clear? Yeah. John, see that folder right there? I have to tell us you won't do anything. I was going to put you into an uncompromising position, but you'll come dressed in a gym outfit. Wait a minute, how am I going to do that? You're suspended. I said I would. I said there are elements of this film that are absolutely timeless. Wiseman actually did do a follow-up high school, too, that took place in high school in New York City that came out in 1994. And I've always regretted that I haven't had a chance to see it yet and actually compare those ways that the two films really do end up being in dialogue with each other. Well, that is a massive cheat, but seeing as I already cheated myself, I'll have to allow it. Okay. All right. My number two is Antoine Duanel, played by Jean-Pierre Liaud in The 400 Blows. It's Francois Truffaut's 1959 debut. It's a classic, probably obvious pick. And indeed, in some ways, Antoine's experience is sort of the proto-childhood for many of the characters that we have on our list. He's barely tolerated by his parents Mm -hmm. in their cramped Parisian apartment. At school, his teacher doles out more punishment than knowledge. So, yes, familiar stuff. Liaud here gives really one of the great 
child performances. He has a poetic... Great performances, period. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. There's a poetic surliness to him that captures Antoine's youthful innocence just as it's beginning to curdle. There's also that remarkable sequence. Truffaut captures this in a handful of clever dissolve cuts where Antoine answers questions from a court-ordered psychologist. So he's finally faced with an adult who's going to genuinely listen to him, who wants to hear what he has to say. And he delivers this monologue that's, you know, 60% bravado and 40% just aching for acceptance. It's really heartbreaking. Pourquoi as-tu rapporté la machine? Oh, bah parce que... Comme je pouvais pas la revendre, comme je pouvais rien en faire, moi j'ai eu peur. Il a fait... Je sais pas, je l'ai rapporté. Je sais pas pourquoi, comme ça. Dis-moi... And then, of course, there is the famous final shot, um, which is just so bittersweet in terms of what it says about adolescence. It's Truffaut's freeze frame that captures Antoine in this eternal moment of youth before the waves of adulthood come crashing in on him. So Antoine Donnell from The 400 Blows, that's my number two. And probably the one I'm guessing you were referencing in your movie Rebels That's list. it. He was my number one yeah. movie Rebel. I love that film. Otherwise, absolutely would have been on my list. So I've got the movie Let the Right One In, the Swedish vampire film from Did 2008. Did you go with that? Okay, I yeah, saw that number come up. Two, Someone suggested it. At number Twitter. two, and I want the record to show, I had thought of it before it popped up on Twitter, but okay. I was all set to just go with Oscar. I think they even threw out Oscar and Ellie, both yeah. the adolescents in the film. And I really was just going to make the case for Oscar because, well, Ellie's a vampire. <laughs> How universal is that experience? <laughs> and he's like so many of the kids we've talked about in the checklist. He's poor. He's bullied. He fantasizes about getting revenge on the classmates who bully him mercilessly. I think Tomas Alfredson, the director, really vividly depicts the alienation he feels because of his divorced parents, and there's a disconnect from them. And there is this standard kind of coming-of-age element to this movie and a lot of these choices in the boy learning to stand up for himself, considering what it means to be in love, what it means to be a friend. Again, pretty standard fare as these movies go. But then I started to think about it, and actually it was a line that we played at the end of the Bo Burnham interview for eighth grade that really crystallized for me the fact that Ellie is the more fascinating, struggling adolescent precisely because she's a vampire. The line is, just because things are happening right now doesn't mean they're always going to happen. That's what Kayla says Mm -hmm. in eighth grade. And Burnham has talked about this. I heard him just recently on another podcast where he talks about this misconception about teenagers that they're not in on the joke of adolescence, he says they are. They know that it's as awful as it is, but they also know that it's fleeting, that they will get past it. As bad as it seems, they will at some point get past it. Except, Josh, what if you can't get past it? What if you are an adolescent for eternity? Yes, Ellie has atypical problems, but she's forever a 12-year-old with the same awkwardness and longing and feelings and need for connection any other 12-year-old has. And her nature makes such connections almost impossible. And all the things that are happening to her right now are destined to always happen just in slightly different forms, which is one of the reasons why the very end of this film is so beautifully sweet and also 
so terrifying. So you can absolutely pair them together, but really it's Ellie forgetting the fact that she needs blood to survive that I think makes her the more compelling struggling adolescent. Now I'm really depressed. Yeah. No, I, I like that suggestion. I'm glad, I'm glad you were brave enough to go there. That's a good one. All right. At number one, I have Dawn Wiener, played by Heather Matarazzo in Welcome to the Dollhouse. I actually watched Todd Solondz's 1996 black comedy for the first time for this list. Really? So glad I did. Its portrait of middle school misery is just so potent that Dawn had to go in the number one slot. The only character I think on my list who might have it worse than Dawn is is maybe Mouchette. I mean, Dawn's classmates torment her, having universally agreed on the nickname Wiener Dog. Her teachers respond with impatience and exasperation. They pretty much blame Dawn for the disruption that her being bullied causes. And some of that bullying, we should note, also does involve the threat of sexual assault. At home, her father is mute while her mother fawns over her cute and perky little sister. I think probably only her brother, played by Matthew Faber, is benign, you could say, though the kindest words he offers to Don are pretty much, duh. And having been the older brother at that stage of life, I have to say Faber is very, very authentic. Matarazzo's performance, though, I mean, she unabashedly embraces how girls in middle school can be fierce and fragile at the same time. So Dawn is either mumbling too quietly when she's talking to her teachers or her parents, or she's speaking like too loudly. It's it's louder than is appropriate, especially when she's frustrated or if she's enthusiastic in the few cases where she gets excited about something. One of the lowlights for Dawn comes when her teacher punishes her for complaining about a grade by having her write and recite an essay on dignity in front of the class. And for that, she adopts this sad, childish whisper. Dignity. Dignity is an important quality everyone should have. Louder! That way you will never gray grub. Gray grubbing is bad. I said louder! Because it means you're asking for a grade you shouldn't get. Because if you got it, it wouldn't be fair to everyone else in the class who didn't gray grub. We can't hear you! Ultimately, Matarazzo's Dawn captures an awful truth about middle school. It's a time when you're painfully self-conscious, so you've got that, but you don't yet have social self-awareness. So that's how you end up, as Dawn does, rocking out while sitting on the hood of the family car to the terrible music of your brother's garage band. You look like a complete dork, but you think you're at a raging concert, and it's that gap between self-consciousness and social self-awareness that that this movie really does capture. Mm-hmm. Now, I heard, Adam, you're not as high on Welcome to the Dollhouse. Well, that's probably not fair. I've only seen it once. And okay. honestly, it was probably 20 years ago. Like, I think Closer I watched it. Yeah, or, I mean, yeah. maybe 25. I watched it not even closer to release. I watched it after probably seeing Happiness okay. and loving it. Huh. And then Welcome to the Dollhouse for me being a little rawer and rougher sure. and it not pro- quite yeah, matching is. up to the comedic absurdity of happiness. So it's one I need to revisit. Yeah, but oh man, Dawn. I mean, when you talk about that, you know, that eighth grade does have that strong element of warmth to it. Yeah. And you don't get much of that here. No, you don't. Nor do you in my number one, Josh. You already took it with your number five. I thought for sure we were going to have it as a joint number one. The ultimate suffering adolescent really is Nadine Nortier. The patron saint? Yeah, she is as Machette in the Brisson film of the same name. I almost rejected it because I did think some of those external factors were maybe too pronounced, but also 
because, Josh, I perceived her suffering as so severe that it would be difficult in any way to suggest her experience is universal, similar to what I was thinking about Ellie in Let the Right One In. But two notes. One, I suppose first you have to acknowledge that much like Balthazar in your beloved Alhazard Balthazar, another Brisson film, Brisson seems to see her as a universal figure. She is standing in for all of humanity, all of those who suffer Mm -hmm. in humanity. But even she does have in watching some clips and refreshing my memory on it today, even she has those experiences at school, like all these other kids on our list, where she's mistreated, as you pointed out, Josh, by her classmates, by her teachers, because she's poor, just because she's an outcast, just because she is different than the other kids. I think the scene where we first meet Mouchette, she is at school. She looks completely out of place in terms of the way she's dressed, and she's getting abused by all the other students. The teacher is mad at her first because she won't sing like all the other kids. And then when she does, like some of the kids who can't win in the Wiseman film with the authoritarians, then when she finally sings, well, she's singing off key. And so the teacher takes her head and shoves it down by the piano keys, hitting the notes loudly in her ear. This is very much a coming-of-age story. You've heard that phrase a lot in this top five. And I remember that when we discussed Mouchette to close out the Brisson Marathon, I mentioned that they all, in their own way, whether they are about teenagers or not, coming-of-age films, and that all of the main characters have these kind of of tree-of-knowledge epiphanies where they are doomed by those epiphanies or they manage to find some relief in those epiphanies. But either way, they have some release from their suffering. And you said that eighth grade was one of these adolescent films, these struggling adolescent films that nevertheless manages to seem a little more hopeful and optimistic. So many of these do not. Well, man, I don't know where you go with Mouchette in terms of hope in the knowledge she ascertains through her suffering by the end of this film it's hard to make a case that there's any real redemption in that no absolutely not i mean this movie is a rough go there's probably two ways you can interpret the ending i would say the final moments but neither of them is good (laughs) the one is worse probably but yeah this is a heavy film yeah and we actually did split on it a little bit we were both fans of it but i think it weighed so heavily on me that honestly whenever this movie comes up I know that I was favorable, and I know that I like it, but I thought I had it lower down in the ranking of Brisson. Well, you're films. just recalling the I'm experience. I'm recalling the experience <laughs> yes, of watching totally. it, the angst of right. watching it. And then I went and looked at the star rating. It was the second highest rated movie from the marathon. And all of my comments and my notes were raving about it. So it is a tough sit, but a rewarding sit. Those are our top five struggling adolescents. We would love to hear your picks. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, I'm guessing you do have... A few honorable mentions. This was a really rich category, actually. So let me run through a number of them that came close to making my list. Coraline and Henry Selleck's wonderful stop motion. Coraline. How about Violet Parr in The Incredibles? Yep. And Consider particularly her. Incredibles 2, where she gets a lot more time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking more about Incredibles, but really? there's probably a stronger case All to her, be made All her the romantic angst and that stuff going on, it's uh, really good. Uh, the Boy in Ballast, which is this tiny mm-hmm. little 2008 the indie. Film. Yeah, yeah. Set in the Mississippi Delta, considered him. Tom in Leave No Trace, yep. which is a very recent film from Deborah Granick. Very good as well. Cyril in the Dardennes, The Kid with a Bike. 
the kids in Stand By Me, of yep. course, also considered. Then a few more here. Tony in Film Spotting, Golden Brick Winner, The Fits, and The Sisters in Eve's Bayou. I did give some consideration after the critic in front of the show, Melissa Tamiga, suggested it on Facebook. Yeah, great picks there. We had some overlap on Cyril in The Kid with a Bike. The Boys from Stand By Me. I really was going to go with Gordy, the main character played by Will Wheaton, even though I think you can talk about all four of them, obviously, in terms of being a little bit troubled. Donnie Darko, probably a little bit too old, but I think he's maybe 15 or 16, so probably could have made it. You know, if it hadn't come up so recently on the show with our Pixar characters list, and I think maybe even another top five, Riley from Inside Out. Yeah, I thought about her. She seems... Maybe a little young Maybe a little for what young. I was thinking about, which is also kind of sad. She was going through all that stuff before. She, Riley still had middle school head, I think. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I envisioned her right about at that 10 Could be. threshold. Could be. Probably should have looked that up. How about Ned from About a Boy, the movie with Hugh Grant? Another British film, Will and Lee, both of them from Son of Rambo. And the Jeff Nichols film, Mud, the main character, Ellis, played by Ty Sheridan. And yeah, I thought about Violet Parr from The Incredibles as well. Lots of good options. And... We'll go ahead and close with one from a listener that I think is a good follow-up, Josh, to our choices of Mouchette in terms of being a little bleak. Hey, Adam and Josh. Nathaniel from South Bend here. I wanted to suggest a pick for this week's top five, that of 15-year-old Billy Casper from Ken Loach's 1969 film, Kess. To say that Casper's a struggling teenager would be a bit of an understatement. His father has skipped town, his brother is verbally abusive to him, his mother at one point in the film calls him a, quote, hopeless case, his classmates relentlessly pick on him, and his teachers, with one important exception, are dismissive, if not outwardly antagonistic towards him. They're perfectly happy to keep him from escaping the grim, working-class life that he's born into. In fact, Casper's only friend, as it were, is the titular Kestrel Hawk that he discovers and, over the course of the movie, begins to train. It's a testament to his outcast state that it's with an animal rather than a human that he essentially finds his most rewarding relationship. As much as the film's observational style captures the boy's oppressive circumstances and his isolation, it also gives us the rare opportunity to glimpse some hope for Casper. This happens most clearly in the scenes with his kestrel, but my favorite scene is one in which Casper's teacher asks him to tell the rest of the class about his bird and the training he has done with it. Well, I've been, you know, I've been wanting to fly free, but I, I didn't, you know, I've freed it to fly off or something like that. And I, it, this had been going on for four or five days and keep on to me saying, saying that fly free next day. Anyway, I got right mad with me saying. Says, right, I'm flying it free tomorrow. Anyway, that night, that Friday night it was, I didn't feed her up so that she'd be sharp set next morning. And I went to bed that night, Friday night, and I didn't get an hour's sleep at all. I freaking the, you know, freaking about bird. That she'd fly off or something like that. Anyway, when morning came, I kept on saying to me, saying, well, if she flies off, she flies off, and it can't be helped. So I took swivel off and let her up onto post. It's a moment of real generosity from the teacher, and also, I would say, from Ken Loach, the director. And it's one that's aided by the restrained performance of David Bradley as Casper, who doesn't outwardly express his enthusiasm, that seems to have been beaten out of him, but who nevertheless conveys it through the sheer depth and nuance with which he speaks about the topic. In any case, guys, that's my totally bleak pick for this week. 
It's a bit of a more serious, grimmer depiction of teen life than the usual darkly comic fare that I think we most often find in representations of struggling teens, at least nowadays, but it has a truth of its own, I think. Can't wait to hear your picks, guys. Keep up the good work. Great stuff, as always, from our friend Nathaniel Myers, who has been here on the show, was part of our Vincent Minnelli marathon, and He's shaming me with that pick of Kess. It's been a long regret of mine. In fact, Ken Loach, I think other than My Name is Joe, that's the only film of his maybe that I've seen. He is a candidate for a film spotting marathon, though it sounds like it would be a fairly depressing film spotting marathon. Nevertheless, if he's not there already, we're going to add him to the list of potential future candidates for a marathon. Again, those are our top five struggling adolescents. You can send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And if you want to be part of next week's show where we're considering the top five films of the year so far, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. That's what we're asking. What is the best film of 2018 so far? And if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or through your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release, The Equalizer 2, Mamma Mia 2, and yet another sequel, the one Josh cannot wait for because he absolutely adores the Unfriended series, Unfriended 2. Unfriended horror masterpiece. Unfriended 2. I think its full title is The Dark Web. I think you're right. Did I nail that? Yeah. Did I get yeah. it right? Nice. Okay. Impressive. Out in limited release, Blind Spotting, a comedy slash drama set in rapidly gentrifying Oakland, co-written by and starring leads to V. Diggs and Raphael Casal. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. The latest from Gus Van Sant stars the great Joaquin Phoenix, Jonah Hill, Rooney Mara, and Jack Black. Saving Britain also opening at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. You can hear more about that film in my conversation with one of the filmmakers, Andrew Sherburn, if you listen to the full podcast version of this episode. The King from director Eugene Jarecki also out opening here in Chicago and eighth grade, the writing directing debut of comic Bo Burnham. You heard from him in the first segment of this show and eighth grade is highly recommended by both of us. Next week on the show, we will share our top five films of 2018 so far. And the week after is when you will get our take on the new Mission Impossible film Fallout. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. You know what would help us out? If you gave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. This week our music was by Zach Clark. It comes from the albums I Am a Guest and his new self-titled album, which is coming in August. More information is at meetmewhenthemoongetsfull.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire 
Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com. <laughs>